But today we're going to move on to uh, the third prophecy of Haggai. And before I jump in, um, the, the Lord was really gracious to me to help me connect this sermon and, and to give me an illustration uh, as an introduction to kind of help me personally to understand this. And I want to use it to see if it may, maybe will help you connect with this text a little bit better. Um, recently, the Tompkinses, we, we got two new additions at our house. Um, the first one is this one. We'll put it on the screen. This is Beans. This is, this is a new kitten that we found at small group uh, when we were at small group. And I told Amber, if you open the door and it gets in, then that's a sign from God that you're supposed to have this cat. So cat jumped in, curled up in the center console, and was ready to roll. Now, it may be, um, you know, a coincidence, but around the same time that we got beans in our family, we got another new addition, and this one is called ringworm. And it's a, it's a common skin infection that's caused by a fungus. It's not actually a worm, if you don't know that. Um, but it's, it's something that, you know, she could have been playing in something in the yard and picked it up, and as Amber was holding it and cuddling it, and we had to quarantine it from our other cats until we got it to the vet and all that kind of stuff. So it lived outside for a while, and the girls would go outside for prolonged periods of time, and they would play with the cat and... and then all of a sudden, Amber's like, oh, what, what, is, what is this? And, and then the girls were like, oh, what is this? And for like two weeks, I dodged it. But the Bible says, pride comes before the fall. And I distinctly remember joking with Amber, and she's like, I don't understand it. You play with the cat just as much as we do. Why don't you have it? And I said, well, honey, I'm the man of God, and he protects him. <laughs> Two days later, I got ringworm. Yeah, so. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with ringworm, but it is one of the most annoying funguses you will ever deal with. Um, it's not super, super painful. It's not like, it's just annoying. And it's like, once you treat it, because like at first we did the whole over-the-counter stuff, and then I went to my doctor, and he's like, dude, I got some stuff that's like 10 times as strong as that. You, we'll use this. And so you use it, and it's like boom, boom, boom. All of a sudden, three days later, four days later, like, yes, it's gone. And then Amber will be like, is that a new spot? And I'm like, <laughs> even this morning, Amber was like, is that a new spot? <laughs> oh, no, I was almost done. It spreads. It is so contagious. Now, once you start treating it, yeah, you, what's wrong, Abe? Where are you going, buddy? I mean, it's not that contagious. But, but once you start treating it, it's, it's not contagious at that point. But, but until then, it's, it's very contagious. And so one little scratch here, and then you scratch somewhere else, and then boom. It, it's moved from place to place. And really, when you stop and think about it, it's really 
much like battling sin in our life. Just when you think, mm, I got this one. Like, I, it's done. You're like, the Lord's like, well, what about this spot? Or what about this spot? Sanctification is a lot like fighting ringworm. Just when you get one spot killed, you find another. And Haggai is going to use kind of some similar thinking and, and some similar questions as he starts out this part of the book by addressing the priests. And he's going to ask them two very pointed questions about the law. And in the Old Testament, this is what you would do. Okay, we, we are so spoiled in our time that we can go and open up our Bible and read it. But that's not what would have happened for them. What they didn't have memorized, they would have to go and talk to a priest and say, hey, I've got a question. How, how do I handle that from a godly perspective? And, and that was the priest's job. His job was to read the scrolls, interpret God's law, and then give answers to people. And so one, we see in this Haggai's respect for the priestly office. This is also probably, well, this is one of the chief reasons why we know Haggai wasn't a priest. Because he wouldn't have went and asked this question if he was a priest. But he goes and he asks the priest these two questions. I'm going to kind of break our text up into a couple of chunks this morning. I want to start by reading verses two or chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, where Haggai says this, On the 24th day, in the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the king of the Lord, or the word of the Lord, excuse me, came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Right? So this is not Haggai's question. This is the Lord's question for Haggai to ask the priests. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, this is what me and you would say their pocket, right? So it's the closest thing they had to a pocket. If they hold uh, holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Haggai wants the people, and more importantly, God wants the people of Israel to learn an important lesson by asking these questions. Something I think, honestly, many of us need to be reminded of regularly in our own life. The prophet was sent to ask the priests about these points of law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment... Now, you may be going, why in the world is somebody carrying holy meat? Well, certain meat that was offered up were considered... Uh, they would take some of that and, and take it back to their house and eat it, okay? So not all of it would be sacrificed, but all of it would be holy. And, and so they would be taking it back to their house, and he's asking if, you know, 
for you and I, let me put it in today's term, if, if he were to stick that holy meat in the refrigerator and it touched up against some cheese, does that now become holy cheese? Maybe if it's Swiss, right? Good dad joke there. But the answer from the priest was no. The, the meat is holy, but there's no transference of that holiness to the other thing that it touches. And then he follows that with another question. If, if someone who is unclean by contact touches a, a dead body and becomes unclean, does the things that he touched become unclean? And the answer was yes. Now, this is a summary, guys, of countless laws in the Old Testament. There's not just one law that says this. This is, this is a summation, a summary of everything you read in the first five books of the Bible. Okay? So these are, these are no brand. This is like the softball question that they could have asked the priests, right? Any first-year priest could have got this question right because this is how it worked. Holiness didn't transfer, but defilement did transfer. Now, what's Haggai's point? It's simply this. The presence of God's holy temple could not make the people holy. You see, for many years, Israel was rocking along thinking, I don't have to, we don't have to worry about anything. Because we got the temple. God lives here with us. And then they get sacked and carried off into slavery, right? Captivity. And Haggai wants to remind them, guys, just because you're rebuilding this temple, that doesn't make you holy. And it's easy for us to forget that sometimes, if we're honest. We think because we're coming to church and we're reading our Bible and we're doing all these things that that makes us holy. But instead, as he points out, according to the law, even the touch of a sinful and defiled person would make the temple itself unholy. The people must not put their hope in their own supposed holiness or in the supposed holiness of the house of God. See, Haggai knew as they're rebuilding this temple, this would be a temptation. This is what led them into captivity to begin with. As they begin to put their faith and trust in the holiness of the temple, thinking that somehow that's going to permeate out and protect me. I don't have to care about the things of God personally. Now, listen, I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to make the sacrifices. I'm going to do, I'm going to check the boxes. But I don't have to really work on that personal relationship with God because he's right there. I see him. I see the temple. It's right there. I know where he's at. And now, here this people is rebuilding the temple again. And Haggai wants to make sure they understand the mistake they made and to not make that mistake again. 
So what then should be their hope grounded in? What should be the basis of their hope? And Haggai's response, as we're going to see this morning, is essentially God's grace. God is good to us, not because we deserve it. And not because His presence makes us holy, but simply because He has chosen to bless us. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there in this new rebuilt temple will always be defiled, as it says in verse 14. And yet God has determined to pour out His blessing upon them. On this people who had at last done what? What what was the thing... That, that caused this blessing. They began to put God first. Right? My, the whole chapter 1 sermon was what? Consider your ways. When they considered their ways, they realized they were first and God was second. But guys, an amazing thing happens when we as believers put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And what? All these things will be added unto you. We don't do it for all these things. But that's the benefit. That's the blessing. That's the free gift of God's grace to us. When we seek Him first. Haggai goes on in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Here he's he's summarizing and being more specific of what he was saying in chapter 1. He alluded to God being the one, but here he's being very specific. He's saying, you you go to get that grain and you think there's, you know, 50 cups and you only get 20. You're going to get that wine and you think there's going to be 30 bottles, but there's only 15. I did that. Not because I hate you, not because I don't love you. Actually, the opposite. The the Bible says that those he loves, he chastises. Why? So that they will return to their first love. And not be seduced by secondary loves. And like the nation of Israel, the secondary love that captures our heart the most is us. We often get so focused on ourselves and our needs and our wants 
that we stop looking at the one who is the ultimate provider of everything we have. And when we do that, we come up short. But I can share countless stories with you in, in the planting of this church the, the woman who used to do our books would always tell me, she never charged us for 10 years. She did our books and never charged us. And she said, I just love watching God work. She goes, there's no way your finances make sense, but yet somehow God always provides. It's amazing how he can take the 10 bottles of wine and turn it into a lot more than that. When we put him First, here again, Haggai is reminding us, according to the Old Testament law, a person who was ceremonially or ritually defiled or unclean was not permitted to approach or worship God. The temple would not make Israel a holy community. Re rebuilding this building wouldn't make them holy because they themselves were defiled. And as soon as they touched it, it would become defiled. They were building it with their defiled hands. Haggai's point is that a people defiled in the Lord's sight spreads its contagion. Both in their secular activities, in other words, in their work, but also to their religion. And we, we see this in this passage, that, that, that this contagion didn't just stop with their worship and their religion to God. It, it affected their job. It affected their career. It affected their livelihoods. The, the whole national economy. And their religious exercises were defiled. As we talked about in the first sermon from Haggai, everything in their life was affected by their disregard for God. It wasn't just their religious life. See, we, we, we have this weird thing that we think that there's these two spheres of life. That, that, that there's this sacred and then there's this secular and, and these are two separate things and and maybe what we learn in the sacred should affect the secular and we should take some of those lessons, but that's different. But that's not the case. And we're getting an illustration of that here, that, that the way you were worshiping directly affected your work. It affected your agricultural output. It affected the storehouses that even when you gathered all that grain... It didn't come out of the storehouse because of blight or mildew, right? Holy has the, the sense of belonging to the divine sphere or acceptable to God. And defiled, on the other hand, means being outside of the divine sphere and unacceptable to God. And what's interesting to me about this particular prophecy is we don't know how they responded to this. <laughs> Right? Ain't nobody saying nothing that's recorded. Because <laughs> this, is, this is a hard word to hear. 
You're telling me the holy temple of God that we're building is defiled because we're the ones building it? With our defiled hands? That the reason we were carried away into captivity was because of our defilement and the way that we relied on the presence of a temple to somehow transfer and make us holy because it was holy? This is, this is hard for them to hear. But I can imagine how some of them may reply, and this is just me imagining. I can see one person saying something like, man, I, I run a solid company. I got an agricultural, like, you know, powerhouse here. I do everything right. I use all the modern technology. I pay my bills on time. What do you mean my work is defiled? How dare you? What does is, what is my religion, what does my worship have to do with my job? Or another saying, but, but wait a minute, this can't be right because I, I, I follow the law. I bring my sacrifices to the temple to make God happy. I, I do everything he says to do. I never stop doing those things. I do those things to deal with my defilement. What do you mean I'm still defiled? What do you mean, Haggai, that I'm, I'm still unacceptable to God? Haggai is challenging both the concept of a purely secular society and the notion that religious activity is in itself somehow self-validating. See, if people aren't right with God their society will always be distorted. And not only will their society be distorted according to God's word, it will also be ineffective. And their religion will reflect their character, not change it. The heart springs of your life need to be clean if the outflow is to be clean. The central point of this passage is that religion cannot save, even when it is the true religion. Think about that for a second. All of these people in the nation of Israel going about doing exactly what the Torah commanded them to do, and yet they were still led into slavery. Because religion in and of itself can never save you. When personal devotion to the Lord was absent, nothing went right. But when devotion is renewed, and we see that by their action in building or rebuilding the temple, they declare that it matters to them to have the Lord in their midst. They, they, they're returning, in, in essence, to a, a God-centered lifestyle. Not just a building-centered lifestyle, but a God-centered lifestyle. The Lord responds by marking the date on the calendar so that they will remember that this is the day that the blessings begin. You've returned to me, 
And now I, through my grace, will bless you. And to most of us, this, this principle is counterintuitive that religion cannot save. We, we live in a culture that regards almost any kind of religion as a good thing. And that's a broad word, religion, nowadays, by the way. Right? I'm not saying Christianity. I'm saying religion as a whole. Right? Some of you remember the weeks following 9-11. And I never saw churches so packed in my life. They were running out of seats. Right? Terrible things happened. Run to religion. And this is, again, exactly what Haggai wants to make sure the people aren't doing. <laughs> right? They're not just running back to religion. Oh, we'll build this building. That'll make everything better. No. You're running back to a person. You're running back to a relationship. You're putting God back at the center of your life. And it's not just about building a building and going through motions. You did that. You see where that got you. It's about putting God back at the center of our lives. Those of you who are younger, we still see this all the time, right? We, we unfortunately are dealing with mass shootings seemingly on a regular schedule. And what happens right afterwards? People go to church. They have prayer walks. Right? They, they, th this is what our culture, we, in so many ways, our culture is like, we hate religion. But when things get bad, right? The old joke, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? This is where they turn to. They turn to religion. And Haggai's like, don't make the mistake of thinking that religion will ever save you, even the true religion. Religion cannot save us. The offering of defiled hands is itself defiled and therefore cannot be acceptable to God. A good work, even thousands of good works, will never make us as sinners right with a holy God. I hear people all the time, it's like, well, I'm just trying to be a good person. Just trying to do the best I can. Just trying to, you know, do as many good deeds as I can. And, and there's this idea that somehow the scale is going to tip in their favor when they die. The problem with that is every one of those good, deals, good deeds is done by defiled hands. And so for every time you do a good deed, there's some selfish motive Deep inside of there that's tipping that other scale just as hard the other way. Not to mention all the other ways that you were defiled. In fact, as sinner, sinners, we will corrupt and defile every good work we try to do. Right? He said, no, Dale, I don't do that. I just post it on Facebook so everybody can see how I took care of that homeless man. I just tell the story for the next three weeks to all my coworkers about how kind I was. We will defile every good work. Even when we as sinners love and serve our neighbors, 
we often sin because we do it to glorify or try to justify ourselves and not purely to serve and glorify God. Even when we as sinners pray to the true God, we sin because the motives of our heart are at least partly corrupt. It's not, Lord, your will be done. It's, hey, this is my will, and I'd really like you to do it my way. Right? We, we may tack on that at the end. Oh, but your will be done. But we spend the 30 minutes of, this is what I want. And I want it now. The corrupt motivation defiles any good act always making it unacceptable in God's sight. If you want some New Testament scripture to, to read about that, Matthew 23, 27 and 28, James 4, verse 3. And see, this reality this morning leaves us with a profound dilemma. This is, again, as I'm imagining... Haggai's first hearers listening to this, I'm pretty sure this is why we didn't get any recorded responses to it. Right? I mean, this is a profound dilemma. What, what do we do with this? The, the fundamental problem that, that they had and that we have is that we are defiled by our own sin. And there is nothing we can do. Absolutely nothing. Every one of us has been affected by Adam's first sin. Which leads all of us to be born unclean. And this is why, if you're a parent, you know this. I don't have to tell you this. But you don't have to teach your kid to lie. You, you don't have to, to, to teach your kid how to cheat. You don't have to teach your kid how to steal. It comes naturally to them, right? I mean, I, I see so many parents say, what are you working on right now? <sighs> Sharing. <laughs> that's, our, that's what we're working on right now. Mine, right? No, no, we, we're going to share the toy. No, mine. No, we're going to share the toy, right? You don't have to teach them mine, that's intuitive for them. That's natural for them. Sharing, on the other hand, being kind to others, man, you gotta, you got to work at that for months, sometimes years, right? Some of you adults need to work on that still. Your parents were slacking, right? That, we, we are born in this state. We, I, no matter how much you may think that everyone is good and they're born inherently good. You cannot live life and really believe that. If you do and you're a member, volunteer in the kids' area. Like if you don't have kids or maybe it's been such a long time and you've forgotten, you got a little fuzzy-headed, you know. Like spend some time with some kids. Our problem lies so much deeper. It's not just a matter of bad influences. It's not a matter of not being raised right. 
We, we have this deep-seated problem inside of us with the fact that we are born with hearts that are corrupted to the core of our beings, as Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us. But let's look at verses 18 and 19. That's the problem. That's the dilemma that they're facing. Let's look at verse 18 and 19 and see how God would solve this problem. He says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. In this section, Haggai is announcing God's radical plan of salvation. Their conditions will not be transformed by a slow, methodical process. Right? It's not like God says, look, we're going to work on you. And we're going to get you a little bit morally better day by day. And then once you get to a certain point, I'll bless you. Right? That's not what he says. Now, their salvation comes solely from God's decision to give peace to his people by dwelling with them. A decision that was concretely symbolized by the rebuilding of the temple. If you remember back from chapter 1, the people made the decision, but it was the Lord that was blessing them and empowering them to actually do the rebuilding. He's the one that, that would allow them to have the strength and the things that they needed to rebuild this temple. The work of rebuilding that had begun by the laying of the foundation stone would result in nothing less than new life and peace from that date forward. God had decreed a radical change of status to his people from defiled to clean so that he could once again dwell in their midst and receive their gifts and offerings. Although the effects of this change would be seen immediately to Haggai's hearers and increased fruitfulness of their crops, there was so much more at stake than just food. There was so much more at stake than just some grain and some wine, some pomegranates, right? The material blessings of the old covenant were always symbolic of a deeper spiritual blessing that come from a relationship with the living God. The people's transformation from defiled to clean, from cursed to blessed, is a symbolic of the transformation that we all need this morning. If we are to have a relationship with God, we have to be transformed by His grace. The transformation doesn't 
come to us through a slow process of moral change either. We don't need to try our best to make ourselves right to live with God, but rather it is the dramatic and decisive work of God alone. I, I, I talk to so many people and I, I ask them about their faith and they're like, well, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to get there. Stop! Listen, let me plead with you. Stop! Christianity is not some program of slow moral transformation. Christianity is about a relationship with a living God and receiving His grace. We don't need to try to make ourselves right to live with God, but rather we need this decisive work of God alone. In salvation, it is never the case that God helps those who help themselves. I hate that phrase. Because every one of you that's trying to help yourself is doing it with defiled hands. Our defilement is far too deep to make that possible. Instead, we have a God that himself acts to deliver us A, a, a people who could never be able to wash away the stain of our sin. He alone cleanses us from our natural filthiness and our sinfulness and makes us holy and radiant and spotless. And you see, that's what's so amazing and different about Jesus. Notice what happens in Luke 8. Let me read a couple of verses to you from Luke 8. When an unclean woman with an issue of blood touches Jesus. Again, if you read your Old Testament, this was one of the worst ways to be defiled as far as the longevity of your uncleanness. Okay, I'm not saying it was worse than others. I'm just saying the prescribed waiting time was a lot longer than others. As Jesus went, verse 42, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the, the fringe of his garment. Right? Like, like, like the fold of his garment. And immediately... Her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice the exact opposite of what the priest said should have happened, happened. The holy thing made the unholy thing that touched it holy. And the defiled thing that should have made the holy thing defiled did not. That's what's so amazing about Jesus. We, 
we are totally rewriting the script of the Old Testament here. Jesus is God's holiness and presence in our lives. Again, in Matthew 8, 1 through 3, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and did what nobody ever wanted to do to a leper. He touched him. He would have been unclean in the Old Testament. Ceremonially, ritually, he would have been defiled. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. We call it a new covenant for a reason. Things are different. Things have changed. Jesus was not defiled. Jesus makes the defiled clean. The coming of Christ is a radical turning point from curse to blessing for the world. Just as the definitive temple, or Jesus is the definitive temple of God. The, the one in whom God has come to dwell in our midst in order to remove our defilement and restore us to his blessing. And Jesus... Our Emmanuel has come. As it says in John 1.14, God is with us. It's not just a Christmas song. It's a reality for those who are in Christ. That God is with us. The incarnation in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the decisive acts of our salvation have taken place. But unfortunately, many of those to whom Christ came would not receive the peace that he offered. They failed to recognize the one to whom their own temple pointed. Kind of like Jamie said last week, they were too busy talking about the old days to realize that new days had come. They were too busy talking about the old temple and trying to focus on what they didn't have that they thought they should have to see what God was doing in their presence now. And when Jesus came, he ran into the exact same problem. They didn't see him for who he was. They didn't see him for being the person who's tearing down this idea of sacred and secular God is no longer living somewhere on a hill in a building, but in our hearts. He's putting His Spirit inside of us. And He is building a temple out of us, Jesus being the foundation of that temple. They failed to recognize the one to whom their own temple pointed. The only one in whom God in whom peace with God was ever truly to be found. And it cost many of them dearly. They didn't receive him because they thought they didn't need the kind of radical salvation that he was offering. 
They thought they were good. They made their sacrifices. They went to the temple. They did all the things that they were supposed to do. They checked all the boxes. They were counting on religion to save them instead of a relationship to save them. They didn't see themselves as defiled and in need of cleansing. They thought they were able to approach God clothed in their own goodness, their own good works. To which Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Yet they failed to recognize that they were sick and in need of a profound healing. In the New Testament, we, we see some did receive Jesus, and along with him, the blessing that flow from a relationship with God. They discovered, as you see in John 1.12, that to receive Christ was to be reborn as a child of God. It was a new birth. Just as the coming of Christ to the world is a radical turning point in redemptive history, so also coming to Christ is a radical turning point in our life. You see, the moment that we are in Christ, everything in our life has changed. We go from being defiled to being holy. We go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Everything is different. Our status has totally changed. We're no longer children of God's wrath. Now we are instead beloved sons and daughters. As we spent several weeks looking in Ephesians, not only sons and daughters, but sons and daughters blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Before we came to Christ, everything we did was defiled in God's sight. Even our most righteous acts, the Bible says, were like filthy rags, which is a very interesting study. Unable to be admitted into God's presence. But now, now that we have become God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, now our stains have been washed away and our hands have been cleansed. By grace, we have been saved and enabled for the first time to do works that are genuinely good in God's sight. How, how do we receive this blessing that he talks about here at the end of this section? How do, how do we receive the sanctifying transformation from curse to blessing? By, by growing up in a Christian home? I ask a lot of Americans, why, why are you going to heaven? Well, I grew up in a Christian home and went to church. Nope. Again, proximity to God does not cleanse a person. In the same way that the temple did not make the people holy. Mere proximity will never work. It'll never be enough. Attending a Christian church, that's, that's a great start, and that's a great idea, but no, that won't save you either. 
It always, it always disheartens me when I talk to older people and it's like, how do you know that you are going to heaven? Well, I've been in church my whole life. I'm sorry your pastor never told you that was never going to get you to heaven. Going to a Christian school or a Christian university? Nope. That's not going to save you either. That's not going to transform you and sanctify you from curse to blessing. Mere contact with Christianity is not enough to counteract the defilement that is inherited from Adam. The holiness that enables us to stand before God as an accepted child is received not through contact with Christianity, but through a relationship and a union with Christ himself. As you are united to Christ by faith, you receive his righteousness as your only hope. It's your only hope of favor with God this morning. And you receive God's blessings of peace and access to his presence. It is as we are joined to Christ by trusting in his death in our place that we are accepted by God into his family. It is through Christ's blood that we are reconciled to God and receive the blessings that flow from that restored relationship. For those of us that have had that relationship restored, this morning, just as Haggai was reminding the people of Israel, we must never forget the reason nor the cost that was paid. You see, for us cursed ones to be blessed, someone had to take our curse. And the longer we get from that day of salvation, the easier it is for us to forget that. The penalty for our sin and our self-glorifying attempts at goodness had to be paid for by someone. And Jesus, God himself, paid it all for you and for me. On the cross, Jesus was treated as one who was defiled and under the curse of God. On the cross, he experienced the full measure of the Father's wrath against sin. The only clean and undefiled person that ever walked the face of the earth. He's the one that took the curse so that we can be restored to God's favor and to receive His blessings. In closing this morning, I want to ask you a question Is God pleased with you this morning? Is God pleased with you this morning? How would you answer that question if I were to ask it to you one-on-one? Would you start pointing to all the things you've done? Would you start pointing to your church attendance? Would you start pointing to the Christian home you were raised in? Or to a relationship with the living God? No amount of good works will ever lead to pleasing God. It is my hope after this sermon that that you realize, like Haggai's hearers realized, the predicament that they were in. I, I want you to understand the hole that you're trying to dig yourself out of.
You need to accept the free grace of God. That's your only hope. To be transformed from cursed to holy. From an enemy of God to a friend of God. And if you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, I, I, I know God is pleased with me. Remember, it's not because of your own efforts to clean up your lives. This kind of transformation comes only by trusting in what Jesus has done. If we know the reality of this transformation, nothing will ever be the same for us. Even when we sin, it will be different for us. Because I got a newsflash for you. You're still going to sin. But the thing that changes is you look at that sin and you deal with it biblically by confessing and repenting of it. And you're reminded, oh yeah, this is why I need a Savior. I can't save myself. It doesn't matter how hard I try. And instead of becoming depressed and discouraged when we fall into some particular sin, we instead leave through confession and repenting, rejoicing that we have a Savior. And remembering, man, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's not up to me. Because <laughs> I don't stand a chance. Thank you that it's the finished work of Jesus that my hope and faith is founded upon. Everything about our life is different. God's definitive word to us, as you see in Ephesians 1.3, is in Christ I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing and will continue to bless you. God marked the day for Haggai's hearers from this day forward. I don't know when your date is. Maybe for some of you this morning will be that date. I hope and pray that it is if you don't know him. Believer, this morning I want to remind you to rest in the promise we see in Ephesians 1.3. Rest, rest in that in the midst of life's frustrations and trials and suffering. You see, there, there, there's, a, there's a forward-pointing aspect of Haggai's prophecy here to the ultimate embodiment of the temple of God, Jesus himself. And he promised to give us eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth where one day every tear would be wiped away and we would reign with him for eternity. Rejoice in the salvation that promises you an incredible inheritance 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And give thanks to the glorious Redeemer who paid such a great price to deliver you from life to death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord, you knew that we, in and of ourselves, could never bridge the divide. And so you build a bridge to us, your enemies. People that despised you and hated you. And yet you still build a bridge to us. Father, your grace is amazing. And Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning. That when I asked that question, if God, if, if you were pleased with them this morning, they didn't know. Lord, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they would receive your grace. The free gift that you give. And Lord, for those of us who have, that we would be reminded, Lord, that, that it is what you have not done and not what we are doing that saves us and sanctifies us. And Father, that we won't forget the sacrifice that was made to bridge that divide, to become sons and daughters and friends of God. Lord, I pray as we come this morning, we would come celebrating the cost. As we take this bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us and we dip it into the wine that represents his blood that was shed for us, that, that, that again, this would be a time of celebration, Lord. That we, that we would leave this morning praising you because we know we need a Savior, Lord. Help us to never forget that, not even for a moment. As you're ready, please come this morning.